And our second Bible reading is Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it would help me if you could keep that page open so we can carry on looking at those verses during the sermon. Let's now bow our heads and pray. Psalm 119 says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Father Almighty, we have to admit that by nature we're simple. So we pray that your words would be unfolded faithfully in this sermon. And as that happens, would you give us light and understanding to help us follow Jesus, your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. An Australian friend of mine once got into serious financial difficulties while he was traveling in Europe in his early 20s. 
to cut a long story short, he ran out of money. He had none left. And he had no credit cards or access to credit. I can't remember why that was, but there was no helpful plastic in his wallet. He also didn't have a cell phone with him, which wasn't that unusual 15 or 20 years ago when this happened. I suppose he could have found a public phone to make a collect call to Australia, but for various reasons, asking his parents to wire him money wasn't an option. My friend was destitute in a foreign land. He spent his very last euros getting to Naples because he and his sister had vaguely agreed to meet there. She was working as a deckhand on a yacht and the yacht was due to arrive in Naples on a certain date. The meetup had never been a firm arrangement and my friend knew his sister might have changed her plans, but to his huge relief, his sister's boat arrived on the scheduled date and she was able to help him. My friend's story has always stuck in my mind because most of us never find ourselves in a situation where we don't know how to obtain food. For many of us, our food security is never at risk. It's true we see homeless people on the sidewalk who are in that desperate situation and they are made in God's image just like us. But if the factors leading to homelessness aren't present in our own lives, we do find it hard to imagine getting into their position. And that's why my friend's Italy story made a big impression on me. His food security had gone. If his sister hadn't arrived, he wouldn't have known where or how to find his next meal. Well, 31 centuries ago, that's what life was like for Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. When they returned to Israel from the country of Moab, Ruth had to work as a gleaner in the fields. It was a kind of scavenging. She picked up stalks of grain left behind by the harvesters. That was how she put food on the table for herself and Naomi. Gleaning was vulnerable, low-status work, the kind of work people would only do if they were hungry and had no other way to feed themselves. Ruth and Naomi lacked food security. And as they looked ahead to the future, they would have known that their situation was particularly problematic for Ruth. And that brings us to our first heading, Ruth's plight. Ruth's plight. That's the first heading in this sermon with two more still to come. In verse 1, Naomi says to Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? You might remember from our time in chapter 1, two weeks ago, that Naomi has rest on her mind. In chapter 1, Naomi told her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, May the Lord grant that you may find a place of rest, each one in the house of her husband. May the Lord grant that you may find a place of rest, each one in the house of her husband. That was the cue for Orpah to stay in Moab, while Ruth extraordinarily decided to stick with Naomi and come to Israel. 
But Naomi hasn't forgotten the importance of Ruth finding a resting place in the home of a husband. Here in chapter 3, two chapters later, months later for Naomi and Ruth most likely, Naomi returns to the theme of Ruth finding rest with a husband. It's worth asking why those two things go together in Naomi's mind. Why does Naomi see marriage as the only way for Ruth to find rest? In our period of salvation history, things are very different. And I'll say more about that later. But 31 centuries ago, Naomi did have valid reasons for connecting rest and marriage. The first reason is food. Ruth and Naomi, as I've said, don't have food security. They're surviving on the results of Ruth's gleaning, and gleaning isn't a long-term solution. It's tiring, draining work. Ruth can't be sure she'll always have the strength to do it. But if she were married, her husband would be expected to provide food security. And not just her husband, also her children. In years to come, once they've grown up, her children, through their work, would keep the pantry stocked with food. We know that's how people at the time thought about these things because in Ruth chapter 4, some local women describe a newborn baby as a nourisher of old age. A nourisher of old age. The second reason why a husband would offer rest to Ruth is because she'd be able to preserve the family line. At that time, maintaining the family line was deeply significant to people. It had a lot to do with land. One of the big life goals of people in Old Testament times was keeping land in the family. According to chapter 4, Naomi actually possesses land. If you're thinking, oh, so they weren't completely destitute after all, it's worth remembering that she and Ruth haven't yet been able to grow anything on it. And it's doubtful whether they would ever be able to farm it themselves because they're living in the time of the judges, a very unstable period of Israel's history when women were particularly vulnerable. But all the same, Naomi does possess land, and that's important for inheritance reasons. Stick with me for the next minute. We're going to spend one minute on Israelite inheritance law. It matters to us because it mattered to them and we can only learn from their experience if we understand what mattered to them and why it mattered. So here comes one minute on Israelite inheritance law. Naomi's son Marlon was Ruth's late husband. And Marlon would have inherited Naomi's land if he hadn't died over in Moab. But the law said if a widow such as Ruth married her late husband's brother and if they then had a son that son would be the deceased husband's legal heir. That son would inherit Marlon's land. Now, Marlon's brother, Kilion, also died in Moab, so Ruth couldn't marry him. But in that situation, the closest male relative comes into play. And the same principle applies. If the widow marries the closest relative of the dead man, their first male son would be the dead man's heir. Their first male son would inherit the dead man's property. 
The point of this legal principle was to keep land in the family, to keep land connected to one family line generation after generation. The American dream is that any individual can make a comfortable, affluent life for himself or herself. The Israelite dream was to keep land in the family. And laws to do with marrying your dead husband's relative were tied in with that Israelite dream. Well, that's our one minute on Israelite inheritance law over. And I hope we can see how all of this relates to Ruth's lack of rest. As things stand, the family line she's associated with is facing extinction. But if she marries a relative of her late husband, Marlon, any son she might then have would inherit Marlon's land as Marlon's heir and keep that land in Marlon's family line. So there's a certain restlessness while she's not fulfilling that purpose. There's a third reason why Ruth needs a husband to find rest, and that's fruitfulness. God had told the Israelites to be fruitful and multiply because he was going to bless the whole world through Israel. That would happen when the Messiah arrived, the promised king, who would lead all who come to him back into God's presence forever. The Israelites had to keep having children so they would stay in existence as a people and give the Messiah to the world. Ruth was by birth a Moabite, but she's now in Israel, trusting in Israel's God, so she can join in with the national drive for children, this goal of blessing the world through Israelite fruitfulness. But only if she finds a husband. Before we move on from Ruth's plight, let me underline that Ruth's situation is different from ours. We're in a different period of salvation history. We're on the other side of the Messiah's arrival. Messiah Jesus has come. Hallelujah. And as a result of that, what we find in the New Testament is that both marriage and singleness are honourable states. There's no sense of restlessness attached to singleness in the New Testament. It's one of the things that changes as the old covenant period of salvation history gives way to our new covenant period of salvation history. And that means the church should be a very comfortable place for single people. The church should never make single Christians feel as if they're missing out on something they really ought to have. No, both marriage and singleness are honourable states in the New Testament church. In fact, the most complete and satisfied and fruitful life that has ever been lived is the life lived by Jesus. And Jesus was never married. With that said, let's return to Ruth and Naomi. Ruth's singleness, as we've seen, is a problem in that period of salvation history. She could still have enjoyed rest in God, as we were singing about just now. That song we sang is based on the Old Testament Psalm, Psalm 62, Find rest my soul in God alone. She could still have enjoyed that rest. She could still have looked forward to eternal rest. But under the terms of the Old Covenant, 
there is a sense in which she would have been restless in this world, in this life, as a marriageable woman without a husband, under the terms of the Old Covenant. But Naomi has a plan to address Ruth's plight. Our second heading is Naomi's plan. Naomi's plan. The plan is for Ruth to present herself to Boaz as a potential marriage partner for him. Let's look down, please, to verses 2, 3, and 4. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. It's fair to say, those are bizarre instructions. What are we to make of them? One thing we know is that Naomi has marriage in mind. She says in verse 1, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you? And as we've already seen back in chapter 1, Naomi herself connected rest to a husband's home. So Naomi wants these bizarre instructions to result in marriage. But someone might say that Naomi is encouraging Ruth to seduce Boaz into marriage. Some people do read her instructions in that way. She tells Ruth to anoint herself, the ancient equivalent of putting on perfume. She says Ruth should go to Boaz at night. She tells Ruth to wait until Boaz has finished drinking. She advises Ruth to make Boaz less well-clothed. She says, go and uncover his feet. And she instructs Ruth to lie down. And judging by what Ruth does later, the instruction is to lie down next to his feet, next to that uncovered part of his body. Put those details together and someone might say that Naomi's plan is for Ruth to seduce Boaz into marriage. But we need to be careful not to read this passage through modern Western eyes. Naomi's aim may simply have been for Ruth to make it unmistakably clear to Boaz that she was available as a marriage partner. The ancient equivalent of call me maybe. That non-seduction reading of Naomi's plan makes sense when you factor in Boaz's godliness, his unusual godliness, which we saw last week in chapter 2. Naomi knows Boaz. She knows he's an honourable man who fears God and doesn't take advantage of people. He's protected Ruth throughout weeks of barley gleaning and wheat gleaning, and he hasn't taken advantage of her. Plus, at the end of verse 4, Naomi says to Ruth, he will tell you what to do. Naomi's plan leads to speech. And whenever Boaz speaks in the book of Ruth, he always says wholesome and godly things. Naomi knows that. She knows that's how he speaks. And that makes me think her plan isn't about seduction. It is bizarre, certainly. But it's designed to get Boaz to say good things. 
whatever Naomi may have intended, the real issue here is what actually happens when Ruth puts Naomi's plan into effect. Threshing took place in the early summer, a hot and dry time of year, but there must have been an evening breeze because the final part of the threshing process requires a breeze to blow the chaff away from the grain. So Ruth makes her way in the warm, breezy twilight towards the threshing floor. She can't help being conscious of the fragrance of the perfumed oil she's just put on. The same question keeps surfacing in her mind. What if he sees me before he lies down to sleep? What should I do then? What if other people see me and stop me when I try to uncover his feet and lie down next to him? Maybe he'll think that I'm trying to seduce him. He knows I'm a Moabite, and he knows about that time in the days of Moses when Moabite women seduced Israelite men. I'd hate it if he thought that. What can I say to make it absolutely clear that I'm not trying to seduce him? What will become of my reputation in this this town, this foreign town, if Naomi's plan goes wrong? But every anxious thought is matched by a peaceful answer. Ruth tells herself, I pledged to go with Naomi to Israel. Her God is now my God. I trust in him. He will watch over me. She also tells herself, no doubt, if this plan works, it will lead to marriage. And marriage to Boaz would give me a resting place. I wouldn't have to do this kind of thing anymore. I'd have a resting place. With these thoughts, Ruth comes near to the threshing floor. She finds a grove of trees nearby where she can see everything that's happening while staying unnoticed. She sees Boaz making sure that everyone has enough to eat and drink and then he enjoys a good meal himself. Part of her doesn't want Boaz to go and lie down because she can't help feeling nervous about following Naomi's instructions. But another part of her just wants all of this to be over. So she is relieved when eventually Boaz lies down for the night. She waits for a while until everything and everyone is silent apart from the grasshoppers and crickets in the background. Uncover his feet and lie down, she tells herself. That's what I've got to do. Uncover his feet and lie down. And as quietly and softly as she can, she makes her way to Boaz, lifts up his cloak so that his lower legs are bare, and then lies down. Of course, she can't sleep, not with her mind buzzing with anxious questions and peaceful answers. While she's lying there, she looks up at the stars and tries to count them for a while. She thinks about God's promise to Abraham to make his offspring as numerous as the stars in the heavens, will she have a part to play in that? She also repeats to herself the words that she's planning to say to Boaz when he wakes. True, Naomi didn't tell her to say anything to Boaz, but Naomi didn't tell her not to say anything. And Ruth wants Boaz to be absolutely sure that she isn't trying to seduce him. So she rehearses her script. I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. I am Ruth, your servant. 
spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. She wonders if Boaz will remember that when they first met in the barley field, he said to her, a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. That's what Boaz had said. It was a kind of prayer. And if he remembers, he might understand the logic behind her speech. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. It's her way of saying, Boaz, that full reward you mentioned from the Lord God, would that not be a resting place in the home of a husband? And who would that husband be, Boaz, if not you? Because you're a redeemer. You're a close relative of my late husband. She hopes he'll process all of that. She hopes he'll understand. Boaz, she's saying, in effect, Boaz, be the answer to your own prayer. Let your wings fulfill your prayer for God's wings to give me refuge. Then suddenly, Boaz wakes up. The decisive moment has come. And that brings us to the third and final part of the sermon, Boaz's pledge. We've had Ruth's plight, Naomi's plan, and now Boaz's pledge. Please look down to verse 8, and I'll read from there. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. There's a verse in the New Testament that says God can do more than we can ask or imagine. And Ruth would say amen to that verse. Boaz's answer is the kind of answer that she probably hadn't allowed herself to imagine. Ruth had probably said to herself, come on, Ruthie, protect your heart. Don't get carried away. You're a Moabite. This is a long shot. But God can do more than we can ask or imagine. Let's unpack Boaz's answer. He understands immediately that the redemption Ruth has in mind is marriage. He understands immediately that he's not being seduced. Remember our one-minute deep dive into Israelite inheritance law. There was an expectation that the brother or close relative of a deceased man would marry the dead man's widow so that the dead man would have an heir through that new union, through their firstborn son. It was a form of redemption because it gave hope to a family member, the widow, who had fallen on hard times, as well as perpetuating the family line and its connection to land. But while the expectation of this new marriage while it was very strong in the case of a brother, commanded, in fact, by the law, it was less strong in the case of a relative. 
One Bible commentary says, There were plenty of loopholes Boaz could have slipped through to avoid any legal responsibility, had he so wished. Boaz generously doesn't use any of those loopholes to avoid redeeming Ruth. Instead, he pledges to redeem her with one asterisk. There's a closer relative, he says in verses 12 and 13, who needs to be given the opportunity to marry Ruth first. But one way or another, Ruth is going to be redeemed, whether by Boaz or by this other fellow. Boaz promises she'll be redeemed. Now that's wonderful enough. The great problem we were thinking about earlier, Ruth's need for rest under the terms of the Old Covenant is going to be solved. What makes Boaz's pledge particularly wonderful is that he's enthusiastic about the prospect of redeeming Ruth through marriage. He says, you've made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not got after young men, whether poor or rich. He speaks of Ruth as someone who could have had her pick of rich young husbands, which is very generous to her because that's unlikely to be true because she was a Moabite and would have been viewed with some suspicion. But he says that wonderfully generous and kind thing to her. And he describes her decision to choose him as an act of kindness on her part. That's got to be good to hear. If you're Ruth, Potential redeemers were not always enthusiastic about the idea of marrying a relative's widow. There's a whole paragraph in Deuteronomy 25 explaining what to do when a man refuses to marry his brother's widow. So willingness alone from Boaz would have been amazing, but enthusiastic willingness is more than Ruth would have let herself imagine. It's nighttime, they can't see each other very clearly, but perhaps there's enough starlight and moonlight to allow Boaz to see Ruth's beaming smile in response to what he said. But there's still tension caused by this other potential redeemer. Maybe he'll come between them by choosing to marry Ruth himself. Maybe he's a moody guy with personal hygiene problems. The tension is high, but as Naomi points out in the final verse, Ruth won't have long to wait before she finds out. Naomi says in verse 18, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And Naomi is exactly right about that, as we'll see next week. Well, here at Good Shepherd, we believe that the whole of the Old Testament points towards Jesus. And one of the ways in which the Old Testament does that is by giving us words and concepts to grasp hold of so that when the New Testament uses those same words and concepts in relation to Jesus, we say, I get it. I know about redemption from the book of Ruth and atoning sacrifice from Leviticus and kingship from First and Second Samuel. Boaz teaches us about redemption so that we'll understand redemption when Jesus comes along. Boaz shows us something of what it means to be a redeemer. When we see Boaz lovingly and eagerly agreeing to redeem Ruth, we see something of the loving enthusiasm Jesus has for redeeming us. 
Think of Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 where Paul says, The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Any believer can make those words in Galatians 2 verse 20 their own. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus has eagerly redeemed his people in his love. Another feature of redemption that we learn about from Ruth chapter 3 is its costliness. Redeeming someone who has got into difficulties is usually costly in one way or another. In Ruth 3, Boaz demonstrates his willingness not only to provide for Ruth, but also to provide for Naomi. Ruth and Naomi go together. Boaz knows that. Boaz gives Ruth six measures of barley, telling her, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. It's a token of his seriousness about wanting to marry Ruth. Maybe it hardly registered as a cost in his thinking. But in order to redeem us, the cost for Jesus was very high. He paid for our redemption with his own blood. When he died on the cross, he took on the fee for our wrongdoing and he paid that punishment price himself through his death. Well, I wonder, it's always worth asking, have you come to Jesus and said to him words like Ruth's words in verse 9, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. I expect most of us here today have done that, perhaps all of us. But if you haven't, please come to Jesus today with those words or words like them. Spread your wings over your servant, for you, Jesus, are a redeemer. Don't go without the redemption you need. Earlier I told the story of my destitute friend in Naples, Italy. He was in a situation of great need. Our natural spiritual situation is far, far worse. Without Jesus, without the redemption he offers, the fee for wrongdoing has to be paid by the wrongdoer eternally. So come to Jesus if you haven't already. Say to him, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. For those of us who already look to Jesus as our redeemer, perhaps it's time for us to rekindle our joy in him. Think back to the beaming joy on Ruth's face and in her heart in response to Boaz's words. As Christians, that same joy is available to us in our relationship with the Lord Jesus. The joy of the redeemed in relationship with the Redeemer. Is it time for you to rekindle joy in your heart in response to Jesus? He has redeemed us and he will return to be with us forever in the new world that he's preparing. We were spiritually destitute, 
We had nothing spiritually. And Jesus has given us himself and given us eternal life. What joy the redeemed can have in the presence of our loving Redeemer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you not only for the redemption that we have through Jesus, but also for his loving willingness and eagerness to redeem us. We think of those words of the Apostle Paul, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. How thrilling it is to make those words our own. Please, Heavenly Father, rekindle joy in our hearts in Jesus, in our relationship with him. We pray that if anyone here is weighing up these things, knowing that they're not yet following Jesus, please put it in their heart and mind to come to him and receive him as their redeemer. In his name we pray. Amen.